Hello, and welcome to the intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Crystal is a member of the Producers Guild of America, an American Association for the Advancement of Science, if then ambassador, and a member of New York Women in Film and Television. Crystal is CEO and founder of You Are You the Right to Be Inc., and she is a bad ass. Today's episode is Demystifying Modern Slavery using statistics to track criminals. Here's Crystal Renee Emery. During the AAAS If Then Ambassador Summit, each day was like a jaw dropping, running around. All these beautiful, phenomenal women simply awed me. Most of the time, I asked each of the women I encountered, So what do you do? I could hardly phantom their responses. Looking for a cure for this disease, or researching a possible miracle drug, or studying bats, and why bats get some viruses. Now you know, if anybody knows me that's listening, I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I can hang with bats. But they were amazing, and so was the bat lady. They were all brilliant and all so different. The second day was even more intense as we became more comfortable being there in each other's company. I found that to be somewhat amusing because we are extremely comfortable in who we are within the world of STEM. For some of us, what we do, our careers, our jobs define who we are. I observed that some of the younger women were hesitantly trying to figure out where they fit in to the hierarchy of the power structure that they thought was in the room. It was clear that they had become so accustomed to the pecking order in their workplaces that they didn't dare to move towards or engage in conversation with some women who were in the same room with them. I, however, and you guys know me, encouraged them to approach anybody they wanted to converse with because as an AAAS, if then ambassador, we were all on equal footing, on a level playing field, so to speak. At one point, I asked all of the mathematicians to take a picture with me. I'm working on a project with 100K and 10, and wanted to make sure I got a chance to speak with some of the mathematicians. That is when I met Davina Durgana. There's something about this summit that I kept talking to the tallest women in the room. Davina breaks every stereotype that you could ever imagine about a mathematician. But what blew me out of the water was what she did with her amazing statistical abilities. She utilizes them to end modern slavery. Let me introduce you to Davina and let her tell you about the work that she does. My name is Dr. Davina Dragana and I'm an international human rights statistician that works on ending modern slavery and human trafficking. Davina, What attracted you to math? I first began 
my love affair with math when I was in third grade. I remember that I was always in these accelerated math classes, and I remember thinking that, you know, math was so clear because there was a definitive answer. These were puzzles. These were things that we had the tools we needed to solve, and basically all we had to do was to use our own knowledge and our own creativity to find the right solutions. Ironically, I was also really good at foreign languages, and I picked up French and Spanish at kind of an early, um, early age and was really excited about how well um, I took to those subjects and how useful they were. But what's interesting is that I've always felt that my foreign language obsession and my love for math were linked. I think it's all about recognizing patterns and being creative and finding solutions. And so for me, math was always a complementary skill to these other abilities that I've always had and really loved. My dad tells a really funny story about a time that he went to a parent-teacher conference for one of these accelerated math classes. It was experimental at the time, and they were, I think we were in fourth, uh, fourth or fifth grade, and we were learning um, college-level calculus. So it was a, kind of a weird um, experimental approach, but they thought that we could try to do it. Basically, we were learning like SAT math um, in, in intermediate school, so it was a very interesting experience. But my dad remembers vividly being in the classroom and hearing all the other parents complain about how they're spending hours every evening on homework with their, their own kids, their students. And my dad went to my teacher afterwards and was like, is Davina not doing her homework? Because I am not having the same experience. I'm not the one sitting here doing all of this work with her. And my teacher then told him, you know, um, Mr. Durgana, your daughter is brilliant at math and she doesn't actually need um, as much assistance, but you do need to make sure that she doesn't push it to the wayside for all of the other things that she has an interest in. And so it's been an interesting tension in my career and my life to this point where I've always loved um, interacting with foreign, um, foreign cultures and using international affairs and, and languages to, to change the world. But then math has always been this piece that connected us. And I even remember once I was a student ambassador um, in sixth grade to um, Australia, and one of the interesting things we did was a homestay where we got to go to school with our, with our students. And I realized that in Australia, in France, and all the places that we've done these experiences, these homestays, even if you weren't fluent in the language, we could still under understand each other because math really was this universal communicator. So for me, this this love and obsession for communication and expression and creativity really comes together in both foreign language and math. What led you on the journey to becoming a mathematician? Becoming a mathematician and a statistician was a natural choice for me. I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the way that data was being portrayed in my field. It seemed that people were only talking about domestic minors in sex work, which was in a very important and continues to be a very important population. So when we were talking about statistics, I knew that I could do it, and I knew that I could do it well, building better models and using data to inform evidence and policy instead of allowing these decisions. I began working on modern slavery after a mission trip to El Salvador in 2006. There, we became really close to all of the other minors um, and children that we were working with in the community. I was teaching English and math, and we were really enjoying getting to know them and, and understanding what their daily life was like. Of course, El Salvador went through a, um, a devastating civil war in the 80s. That meant that they were still feeling the side effects of a lack of capable governance structures and really, really um, crime-ridden environments in, 
El Salvador itself. Before we were meant to leave that mission trip, we actually had to go to the funeral for a, a young girl who was the cousin of one of the children in our classes, um, and she had been trafficked by MS-13. So when I left, I realized that all the children I'd come to love were really in a very precarious and dangerous situation. And so I resolved, when I came back to the United States, to find ways to help them no matter what that meant. What was really interesting, though, is that I found that as much as I looked into this internationally, I was shocked by how much um, modern slavery is occurring in the United States in our own backyard. So it's interesting that I started with this international experience and then came to the U.S. and worked for every group I could find that worked on domestic slavery and actually wrote my dissertation on creating a slavery model for the United States and minors in the United States. And then now I work on the Global Slavery Index where I do this at a global level again. Exactly how do you define modern slavery? Modern slavery is a situation where someone is forced or compelled to work and are unable to leave that situation. Modern slavery can occur in many different industries, including sexual services, construction, domestic work in the home, agriculture, fishing, and manufacturing, among others. Can you be more specific regarding what modern slavery looks like? Modern slavery occurs when someone is forced, coerced, or defrauded into performing work against their will. Sometimes that means that they are physically detained in a situation of work and forced to provide sex or labor, but other times it could just mean that their passports are withheld or that they're waiting to earn back wages that are owed them. Modern slavery happens in every country in the world and in almost every industry. So modern slavery isn't just about sex trafficking. Modern slavery occurs in many other industries in addition to sexual services. While many people think of sex trafficking and they think of street-based prostitution and other forms of sexual abuse, what we're talking about with modern slavery and labor includes people that are receiving, um, receiving threats or unsafe conditions of work, when you have um, people that are withholding your documents or your passports and you're unable to leave, when employers are withholding your wages and you're unable to earn that money back, and so you stay hoping that you'll eventually earn the money that you've, you've not received. Um, modern slavery happens in many different ways and definitely many forms of labor. Sometimes what it'll look like are the people that are working in the back kitchen for your favorite restaurant or the serving staff that don't get enough, um, they don't have enough breaks and they're forced to live on the premises. Sometimes when you're getting massages or your nails done at your favorite salon, that might be a place to ask about the labor conditions that the people are, are working in. Um, really, modern slavery is ubiquitous in many industries and in every country. Wow. I'm learning something right now. Which population remains the most vulnerable in today's climate? How do statistics help us identify these populations? Understanding vulnerability to modern slavery is a key component of combating this, this crime and protecting the vulnerable people in the world. Really what we're talking about are that vulnerabilities affect people when their governments cannot adequately protect them and that there are willing offenders that are able to, to perpetuate this crime. What we end up seeing is that children, mainly runaway and homeless youth, are often very vulnerable to this crime given that they have very few other legal routes for employment and they're unable to adequately protect themselves. We also see that with climate change, you have a lot of environmental um, insecurity leading to refugee climates. Con conflict also leads to climate um, refugees 
and other refugees and internally displaced persons that basically are forced into temporary living situations with inadequate protection as well. So unfortunately, there are many different forms of vulnerability that contribute to modern slavery, but right now I would say conflict, um, environmental insecurity, and of course, um, unprotected minors are among the top um, industries. How has development in math and statistics helped better identify vulnerable populations and individuals? How do we use this information to help people? Statistics and math have actually changed the way that we're fighting modern slavery. By being able to look at models and have actually better administrative data that inform those models, we have many more populations of vulnerable and at-risk people that we can model and understand what their risk to modern slavery looks like. We have a lot more research now in terms of prevalence, so we understand better where this is occurring and who's being affected. And so it helps to inform how we're understanding who needs our intervention the most and basically what we can do to make the biggest impact in this field. And all of that is coming from statistics. Basically, we use statistical models to try to understand how we prioritize the very many vulnerable populations to this crime, and we try to help tailor those recommendations for local, regional, and national contexts. So when you say statistical modeling and human security theory, what do these mean in layman's terms? Statistical modeling basically means that we take all available data that measure phenomenon. So the, the cornerstone of statistics really means that we use data about the world to try to create ways of understanding and, and explaining what the world is like. And the reason we use data to do this is because sometimes when we observe things for ourselves, we might build narratives or, or ways of thinking about the world that might not actually be true based on the actual data. So what we use in statistics is a more objective form of analysis that allows us to look at all of the data we can and to see what comes out of that that isn't just a normal or expected occurrence, meaning that there are things that there's a certain amount of variation in all things in the world. We expect certain things to, to change slightly because everything has to do with humans and human interaction, and sometimes things will, will change a little because we're not all the same. But what statistics helps us to do is to understand which of those changes are notable and different and might mean that there's actually a relationship there that's worth exploring. Those relationships are what we're looking for when we're talking about vulnerability and risk modeling for modern slavery. We're trying to understand what is actually making people more vulnerable to modern slavery so we can understand what we can actually do to stop it. What is the most challenging aspect of your work? Working on an issue like modern slavery takes a huge personal toll. It's one of the most difficult issues that I've ever encountered, and I've actually found that it's not sustainable for most people to work directly with survivors every single day of their career. And for me personally, I found that I, I wasn't becoming the same person. I was, I'm naturally very optimistic and really happy, but after a few years of working directly with survivors, I found that I was becoming more pessimistic and depressed by all of the stories that I was hearing, especially situations involving children. I think that there's a natural instinct to want to protect children, and especially in the United States post 9-11, um, there happened to be quite a few cases that I would encounter directly where children were being isolated from capable adults and other guardians and law enforcement that could help them because these young children from the Middle East were being told that Americans 
wouldn't believe them or wouldn't care about their welfare because they were from the Middle East. And so for me, it was devastating because you know that there's a little bit of truth behind a lot of that um, that fear, that legitimate fear that many people of color had in the United States after 9-11. But the fact that really, the thing that really upset me was that traffickers were exploiting those weaknesses in our society to keep children from being able to seek the assistance or even to trust us to get them to law enforcement or other capable guardians that would stop this abuse. So the fact that there were even all of these children that we would encounter through our work that would constantly stay in situations of abuse because they didn't believe the best of Americans. They didn't believe that we could get over our racism and our biases um, after 9-11 to help them. It was heartbreaking because there's only so much of that that we can combat ourselves. And of course, I'm a person of color as well. And, and I live in New York, and I was in New York during 9-11, and I, I totally understand how legitimizing that fear can be. So it was really devastating, and it made me think really long and hard about um, this tension between my patriotism for the United States and also my acceptance of our society. Let's talk about AAAS if-then ambassadorship, which is how we met. Sure. My journey to becoming a AAAS if-then ambassador actually began in the Mediterranean Seas. I was on a trip with my dad, um, and I realized that the first application deadline was quickly approaching. So using really terrible Wi-Fi, I was able to get my application out. And that included streaming videos of talks I'd given for the application and trying to pull together um, letters of support. So it was definitely a, a difficult experience. And I wasn't sure at all that I would have gotten any anywhere with this. What ended up happening, though, was getting to Dallas and meeting all these other women and, and hearing that I was accepted were really a life-changing experience for me. I have spent so long as the only or one of the only women in the room when I'm in a lot of my statistical association meetings or in academic conferences. And, and what's fascinating now is that I've met so many other brilliant women that are also doing really incredible things for their fields. And I'm just constantly impressed by how creative and interesting all of our jobs are, that we can use STEM in so many different ways to change the world around us, whether that issue is conservation of small mammals or if it's working in outer space. It seems like there's no limit to what we can do, and I just am constantly inspired by the other women that we're working with. What do you think is being lost due to the lack of women in the field of mathematics? What unique perspectives can a woman bring to this area of STEM? I think we're missing quite a lot by not having more women in STEM, and specifically for me in math and statistics. So for me, when I work with UN bodies on statistical modeling and understanding vulnerability and risk and prevalence to modern slavery, one of the really interesting components is that there's often only other men in the room. Um, that's changed in the last couple of years, but still, women are generally outnumbered, even in a field like modern slavery where there's many where I know many, many more women working in the field than men, in terms of leadership positions, we're often not very visible. And I think having us in those technical spaces means that we're making, we're making space for our own creativity. We're saying that it's okay to be young and colorful and creative, and that there isn't one formulaic way to fit into the academy. And I think a lot of our issues, specifically for math and sciences, um, and definitely statistics, comes from 
the academy, basically how PhD institutions um, train and prefer male um, male professors to kind of own those spaces. And I think when we have more women there, we're going to see more of an acceptance for for life balance. That we have this idea that oh, it's not women's places are not just in the home. It's not that women are caretakers first and academics and serious scholars second, that we are all family people, that we are all leading academics and scholars. And I think having more women in these spaces will make it less uncommon that this part of our identity is is accepted and not shamed. I, I'm very concerned about not having more women in these rooms because it implies that for no other reason other than our traditional roles as caregivers um, and mothers that we may not be there, when that's not the case. Of course, there are many women, many statisticians that are not um, not following those traditional roles that don't have those obligations. And I, I worry, as someone who would eventually want a family, that um, unless there are other women in those rooms, we're going to continue to see situations where males um, without some of those traditional roles and some of those obligations may continue to act as though those those roles prevent us from succeeding. And I, I want to believe that we're building a world for ourselves and our daughters and our sons where women and mothers and caregivers and all of those other pieces of our identity aren't shelved because there aren't enough other people like us in the room. Statistics remains a largely male-dominated field. What can we do to encourage women to pursue this field? There are a lot of ways that we can address getting women more interested in STEM and statistics in particular. One of the main issues that I identify with why people are not pursuing STEM and statistics careers, especially women, is because the way that we're teaching young people statistics in college is not conducive to their long-term love or interest in the subject. These large one-on-one lecture halls where professors are teaching from the textbook and also the quality of education is declining with our over-reliance on adjunct professors without support and actual living wages means that a lot of people are experiencing statistics as something they need to check off their box um, for their, their requirements to graduate, but they don't actually get to fully understand or engage with it. The other piece of this is visibility of women like me in the field who are using statistics to change the way that the world can be. And I think one of the pieces that we, we miss when we're trying to get people to join the STEM and statistics pipeline is that we're not articulating well enough the impact that they can have with statistics. A lot of people, when they meet me and understand how my work um, blends human rights and statistics, they're shocked that that's even an opportunity or a possibility for them. And I think if we want young women to join our field, we need to make some of these really interesting careers and uses of statistics and math clear to them at the point that they're beginning to learn about it so that they know that if they stick with it, that they can do this one day, that they can actually use this to make a difference. Davina, I do a workshop called Building Bridges, the Power of the Sisterhood. One of the things that I see is that we don't work together as women. We are each other's competition on a variety of levels. How can women better help each other, particularly within your realm? How do we lift each other up? Women supporting women is one of the most important objectives for how we can change the face of STEM fields today to have more women and to be more inclusive. 
I think the reason that a lot of women in the past haven't supported each other is because they're still operating within this male-dominated hierarchy where women are not as accepted and therefore if you're the one woman in the room, you're almost fighting for that space and that right to exist. But for me, I think that having women um, as mentees, I've had really strong women mentors, that's a huge part of my, my prioritization. So every week I spend on average of at least four hours on mentorship, and that can mean reviewing resumes for young girls or giving them advice or sometimes working with them to understand kind of different projects that they're working on. I, I oversee lots of master's theses and PhD dissertations. Um, I provide a lot of input on those. And I, I always prioritize women when I can because I know that the academy isn't yet where it needs to be in terms of supporting women in, in these fields. I also think that for me personally, there's a lot of really amazing women that I've had the pleasure of working with. And I'm also very lucky to be on a all-female research team at the moment that's women-led as well. And so for me, I've actually been so supported by other women and really pulled up and um, and identified and, and upheld by these other women that for me, I, I can't imagine another reality in which I wouldn't do the same for, for other women in my field. I think part of it is that we have to kind of go into all of these spaces knowing that if there's enough space for all the men in the room, there's enough space for all the women that want to be there too and to do everything we can to help make that happen. What are your dreams and hopes for yourself and for the work that you do? For myself, I've always had a lot of different interesting goals that um, I'm constantly in pursuit of. I um, was a volunteer EMT and firefighter for quite a while, and one of the things that I really enjoyed was being able to help others in the community in, in any way that I possibly could. Um, obviously, my travel schedule now and my work schedule makes a lot of that kind of engagement really difficult. But when I'm thinking about how how I see myself in like 20 years, I've always had a love for public service, and that that could be something like volunteering with fire departments and EMTs again, or it could be something like serving in a public office. Um, I really I have this need and this desire to be a part of a community, to be a part of making things better for the people around me, not just the people around the world that we work with on modern slavery, but I think there's a lot of work to do in our own backyards, and it's always been a goal of mine. Um, I also really enjoy challenging myself in whatever way that is. So if that means that I'm taking programming classes online or if I'm working out in CrossFit every morning and trying to master a new skill or a new ability, I, I really enjoy pushing myself, and I find that if you don't kind of I'd invent opportunities for yourself to, to meet those needs, to meet those, um, those goals, that it becomes something that you, you maybe miss in your life. So for me, creating these opportunities to continue to improve and change have been really critical. And it, it also adds a lot of mental health benefits for working in a field as serious and as difficult as modern slavery. Is there anything else you would like to say about your experience with the triple A S if then ambassador program. All of the women that I've met through the triple A S if then ambassador program have been really truly changing the world in ways that inspire me and make me believe that there's so much hope for how women will tackle these issues in the future. Opportunities like this podcast and other collaborative efforts with these women might be the greatest outcome from this whole ambassador program because it means that we now have a community of women that are supported um, 
by each other and committed to working with one another to achieve our mutual goals. So for me, having a new community of women that are so impressive and such role models to me is such a benefit to this program that I'm so grateful to have met you, Crystal, and to be, um, to be a part of this community. I learned so much in this interview because I didn't realize that when we talk about modern slavery, we think of the old image of someone being captured and forced into a sex relationship where they have no say. But modern slavery, of course, has those types of situations, particularly with sex trafficking. But I never thought about working and your boss taking your pay. There was a Chinese restaurant in New York on Columbus Square that I loved. I mean, we always went there whenever we went to New York. But I always felt strange when I saw that the workers slept on the floor in the back of the room during their breaks. I did not realize that this is a form of modern slavery, that when someone takes your passport and threatens to have you deported, that you would do anything to remain employed. I am humbled by the work that Davina does, for she gives voice to those who are truly voiceless. I must thank Lida Hill, Philanthropies, and her amazing staff, Nicole, Matt, Andrea, Margaret, and Jeff, for making the AAAS If Then Ambassadorship possible. I thank Peggy Hamburg, Shirley Malcolm, Liz Croker, and Jemina Philippi for the hard work it takes to manage this project. And I thank the URU team for their determination to get me to Texas. I thank God for this amazing journey. There are no words to capture the whole story. Thank you for listening. Namaskar. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Intersection of Crystal R. Emery. Subscribe if you like today's episode and want to receive notifications when new episodes are available. New episodes will be available every Monday and Thursday. If you would like to learn more about or support Crystal's work, please visit URUTheRightToBe.org. You can also follow Crystal on Twitter at Crystal R. Emery or at Changing Stem. Music is provided by Jay Hogard featuring I Am Free from his album Harlem Hieroglyphics. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Namaskar.